Alrighty, church, if you have your Bibles, let's open those up to Ecclesiastes chapter 4 this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 16 this morning. Last week, we wrapped up the tail end of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and we came a little bit into Ecclesiastes chapter 4 uh, as we looked at how uh, Solomon considered our broken court system and how that makes uh, life under the sun futile. He said there that there is persecution and oppression in our world that unfortunately receives no fair assessment in court because those who are persecuted and those who are oppressed have no power to fight back against their oppressors. All right, the court system is supposed to be a place uh, where righteousness and justice prevails over everything else, but unfortunately, just like everything else in our world, the court system is broken. All the power and all the influence that Solomon is seeing lies with the tormentors of these persecuted and oppressed people, right? Solomon says that the courts are no place to find any ultimate hope or any kind of lasting comfort. And for that, we must put our hope and our expectations solely on the Lord who seeks justice for those who are persecuted. And I said that we can trust that those who persecute and those who oppress will eventually get what they deserve to the get what they deserve due to the fact that there is coming a day when God will hold every single one of us accountable for everything that we did and every reason why we did the things that we did. All right, so there, the idea of divine justice in that regard makes most of us grateful that nothing that happens is ever missed by an all-knowing, all-present, and all-powerful God, even if we don't receive justice from earthly authorities, God will ensure that justice is served in the end. And to that end, we shout amen, right? We want that. We want that affirmation that eventually all things are going to be made known and all things are going to be held accountable for. Uh, we can't wait until those people get what they deserve, right? That's how we process this. But then the Bible confronts us with that uncomfortable reality that all of us fall short of God's glory. All of us fall short of God's perfect design and desire for holiness. And so God's judgment isn't coming just for those who have oppressed us. God's judgment isn't just coming for those who have persecuted us. It's also coming for us. It's coming for all of us. Because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that's why the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is so important. Jesus lived the life that we should have died, or should have lived. He died the death that we should have died and that we deserve. He took the punishment that we had earned, and He gives us His righteousness in return. That is our only hope. That's the only ultimate hope that we have in this 
life. And that was last week. This week, Solomon's going to do a, a dramatic turn. He's going to go completely away from that train of thought that he was just having. And he's going to focus this week on uh, having a work ethic and valuing our relationships in our passage for today. This kind of turn is often why the wisdom literature is so difficult to read. There, there isn't often a continuation of thought. You know, you read one of Paul's letters, and he's talking about the same thing for the most part the whole way through. In wisdom literature, it zigzags through from one point to another. If you read through the Proverbs, you, you know, you've got this verse is about this thing, and that other verse is about something completely different. And we see a lot of that here in Ecclesiastes. And so this is what we're dealing with here. We've got it from verses 1 through 3 tied in with that oppression and verses 4 through 16 tie into this idea of how we work. Uh, we're not talking about the love of money here, but how we work to get that money. And so let's pray and we'll see what Solomon has to say about our work ethic this morning. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that it shows us how we are to live. It shows us how we can have a restored relationship with you. And I pray that when we have that restored relationship with you, it would change how we live. It would change how we work. It would change how we play. And so help us to see well uh, how we live our life today. Help us to have a desire to change, to be more like Christ uh, when we find certain ways that our life doesn't line up with your word. It's in your son's precious name that I pray. Amen. All right, so let's read. We'll go all the way through. And then we'll break it down. So we're going to read verses 4 to 16. And follow along with me as I read that for us. I saw that all labor and all skillful work is due to one person's jealousy of another. This too is futile and a pursuit of the wind. The fool folds his arms and consumes his own flesh. Better one handful with rest than two handfuls with effort and a pursuit of the wind. Again, I saw futility under the sun. There is a person without a companion, without even a son or brother. And though there is no end to all his struggles, his eyes are still not content with riches. Who am I struggling for, he asked, depriving myself of good things. This too is futile and a miserable task. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Better is a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer pays attention to warnings. For he came from prison to be king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who move about under the sun follow a second youth who succeeds him. There is no limit to all the people who were before them, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. This too is futile in a pursuit of the wind. So what we see here in these 13 verses, we're going to look at four different types of work ethic. Right, so if you're taking notes and you are an outline type of person, those work ethics are broken down like this. In verse 4, we see someone who is working out of jealousy. Right, in verse 5, we're seeing someone who doesn't work at all because they're lazy. In verse 6, we see a moderate approach to work, which is what we should all be striving for. 
And in verse 8, we see the workaholic. Right, the person who has forsaken all relationships in order to succeed and make more and more money. And then after verse 8, we're going to see Solomon go into a discussion on the importance of relationships since the workaholic has forsaken all relationships. Right, but we can see the impact, if we look at it carefully, we can see the impact of all these approaches how they affect our relationships, both in our jobs or in our family life. And we'll begin discussing each one with jealousy. Right, Solomon says that he saw all labor and skillful work being motivated by one person's jealousy over another. And I think we would all probably agree that that is an overgeneralization. Right? I don't know that all of our labor and all of our skillful work is done because we're jealous of someone else. Uh, but there is definitely a contingent of people whose sole reason for striving for success and becoming the best at what they do is so that they can have what other people have. Right? We, they're, they're, uh, I did not know this. Apparently there used to be a comic strip called Keeping Up with the Joneses. Right? That's where that phrase comes from. And in that comic strip, there was a family called the McGinnis family, who was always in competition with the Joneses. And so they were constantly striving to have what they have or have more than what they have. And so that's where we get that term, keeping up with the Joneses. We do not want to be on the bottom rung. We see what other people have around us and we are striving to have what they have. And so that might motivate us to do you know, our best at whatever it is that we do. We're not striving to honor God in our life, in our, in our job, and doing the best we can for that reason. We're doing our best so that we can have what those people have. Better yet, if I could have more than they have, that would be even better if I am the type of person that struggles with jealousy. Because if I'm struggling with jealousy seeing what you have, I want you to struggle with jealousy seeing what I have. Right? That's typically the mindset of people like this. Right? The motivation for this is going to vary from person to person. Right? Maybe their self-worth is tied up in what other people think of them. And so having more stuff, having more prestige, having more power gets other people to, ooh and ah, look at them, they're amazing, I want to be like that. And so their self-esteem is wrapped up in the thoughts of others. Maybe they're simply competitive by nature. Right? And like the stuff that those people have that I'm competing with, that stuff is the how we can tell who's winning right if if i have more stuff than you I'm, I'm beating you and if you have more stuff than me then you're beating me and i'm competitive by nature so i cannot have you beating me and so i'm going to work harder than you right i'm going to strive to have more power more prestige more stuff than you do whatever the motivation happens to be one thing that is consistent in those who struggle with jealousy is that it is a lonely unfulfilled existence it's an unfulfilled existence because they are always looking to the next level of success for fulfillment. Whatever they have achieved is never good enough for long. Why? Because there is someone out there that has more. Right? Somebody has more than you do. Someone has more power than you do. Someone has more influence out there than you do. Right? And it's lonely because the people in your life are either people you're trying to overcome with your own success or people you're trying to keep from overcoming your success with theirs. 
So it's this constant battle back and forth with the people that are in your life. And it's an exhausting rat race that never ends. Right? If you do finally manage to get to the top, right? you're at the top of your game. You have the most money in the world. Right? You have the most power and prestige in the world. You're still constantly looking over your shoulder to see who's coming up after you. You're constantly looking over your shoulder to see who's going to take that position from you, and your jealousy will not allow that. And so you can never have peace. You can never be content. This type of work ethic is futile. It's like that circular nature pattern that Solomon talked about in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, where he's talking about the water cycle and how the water goes up in the sky and it rains and it goes to the river and goes to the ocean and goes back. It's never ending. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, keep your life free from the love of money. And we could also put influence, power, whatever it is that's going to make us jealous for what other people have. He says, keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Right, that position or that stuff that you are so jealously pursuing can be taken away. It can be burned up in a fire. Someone can overtake you in your position. But here, God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Right, there is contentment in that. There's security in that. And this is what people should be striving for if you are someone who struggles with jealousy you are never going to find contentment outside of that relationship with christ the next worth ethic that solomon mentions here in verse five is laziness All right, solomon says that the fool folds his arms and consumes his own flesh that sounds really weird right like i don't know that i would describe laziness in that way but that's how solomon does it uh, and by this, he's just saying that this person is sitting around and not doing anything. Right? His hands should be busy with work, and yet instead of working, they're tucked under his arms, just like this, and he's kicking back as everybody's working around him. Now, many people think that we work because of the fall. Right? That's why we work. Work is terrible. It doesn't bring us any kind of enjoyment whatsoever, so it must be because sin entered the world that we have to work. But the reality is we were made to work. The whole purpose of, well, not the whole purpose, but part of the purpose of creating us, it says in Genesis 1, that he gave, God gave us the earth to cultivate it and to subdue it. Right, so work was a part of the design. We were supposed to work because subduing the earth was going to take effort. Right? Before the fall, though, everything was perfect. And when we put in that effort, we would see a return on that effort. Right? Maybe even one-to-one. -one. We were talking about in the parable of the sower recently on Sunday night how when the, the sower would sow out seed, they would hope for a 10% return on what they sowed. Before sin into the world, it may have been a 100% return. Every seed that you sowed, would bring food, vegetables, plants, whatever. But unfortunately, when sin entered the world, now all of a sudden all that effort that we put into it is 
struggle, it's strife. It says that we will work the earth with the sweat of our brow. Right? The earth was cursed by God, so now work is hard and it doesn't always produce a lot. And some people's response to the difficulty of this work is not to do any. Right? They expect other people to provide for what they need. That could be their family, it could be the church, it could be the government. They hold their hand out and they expect someone to put something in it. And they don't want to have to do that themselves. Right? This work ethic also leads to a certain level of loneliness because uh, what kind of feeling do you inevitably develop towards someone who doesn't help out? Someone who's constantly sitting around, got their feet kicked up on the coffee table while you're cleaning around them. Right? They're constantly sitting around while you are busting your tail trying to make money for your family and they're like, hey, could you buy my groceries? Could you pay my electric bill? Could you cover rent for me this week? What have you done this week? I just sit around and watch TV. Folded my arms and watched you work. But could you help me out? That kind of relationship is going to inevitably lead to conflict. It's going to inevitably lead to strife. And no matter how good your heart is, if someone is taking advantage of you like that, you are eventually going to look down on them. You're eventually going to have harsh feelings towards them. Right? And if you continue to, to do this for them, you will find that your affection for these people are, are slowly fading away. This will eventually erode your relationships. And if you're one of these people who are constantly being lazy, if you're one of these people who are constantly seeking help from others, you will find that maybe at some point you've got that help at the beginning of that relationship, that slowly and surely all of these people will fade away from you. They will avoid you. They will avoid your phone call. They will not accept your text message. They're not going to let you come by the house because they know that as soon as you show up, you're going to be asking for something. All right? People might start out with a sense of obligation to you, but eventually they're going to avoid you like the plague. The Apostle Paul has this to say to those who struggle with laziness. In 1 Timothy 5, Verse 8, it says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith, and he is worse than an unbeliever. Right? So he's not saying that if you don't provide for the sluggard, that you're worse than an unbeliever. He's saying if you are the sluggard, you are worse than an unbeliever. We have a responsibility to provide for our family. If you are a believer in Christ and you are lazy, Paul says that you are worse than an unbeliever because even those who don't believe in Jesus love their families enough to provide for their family. And you who claim to have a relationship with Christ should love people more than those who don't have that relationship with Jesus. And if you're just sitting around doing nothing, then it's showing that you don't actually love those people. In 2 Thessalonians verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 6 through 12, Paul says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. 
It was not because we did not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. If you're not going to help yourself, Paul says, then the church should avoid you. Now it's not saying that if you can't help yourself. Let's make that clear. He's saying if you won't, if you will not put in the work that you are capable of doing, then the church is to avoid you and you should go hungry. And there should be no guilt felt by the church for that because that is a choice that you are making on your own. That seems counterintuitive to some, right? The church is supposed to be loving and supportive and you're not wrong about that. You're supposed to be loving. You're supposed to be supportive of people who are struggling, especially for those who cannot help themselves. But if you prop someone up who is fully capable of working and yet they refuse to do it, then you're actually allowing them to continue in sin. If you're not confronting someone's sin, you yourself are in sin. If you are enabling their sin, you are in sin. If you're allowing someone to continue doing something that we know goes against the will of God, then you are not loving someone well. In fact, you may just hate them. Because instead of having that difficult conversation with them, you are willing to let them continue on in something that is disobedient to the Lord. The third work ethic that Solomon speaks out is the one that we should be striving for. This is the healthy lifestyle that's also going to help us create and have healthy relationships. Solomon says in verse 6 that it's better to have one handful of what you need and to be able to rest than it is to have two handfuls with effort that isn't ultimately going to fulfill. So as I said before, it's important that we work. This is what we were made for. It's important that we provide for our family. And if we're able to acquire more than our family needs, it's important that we are generous with what God has given us. But all of that needs to be found in moderation in our lives. If we don't find rest, we will burn out. Inevitably. We can't keep going on forever. If we don't find time to enjoy our relationships with those we care about, eventually we're going to find ourselves to be alone. Right? Maybe that doesn't mean that husbands or wives leave. Maybe that doesn't mean that the children are no longer in our house. They may still be present in our lives, but if we forsake those relationships for long enough, eventually we'll find that those we love will have a heart that has grown cold and callous about us. Right? They stop looking into the stands for mom and dad at the ball game. They're not coming. They got too much work to do. Right? They have no expectation that you're going to come around and, and give a date night. They're too busy. Got too much going on at work. Don't have time for that. You may have these people still in your life, but eventually you're going to be finding yourself effectively alone. Right? If you have the proper perspective of work, though, you can enjoy your life. 
If you have the proper perspective of work, you can have relationships that thrive and you can still glorify God in all that you do. Right? This is what we should keep in mind as our goal. Work hard when it's time. Play hard when it's time. Rest hard when it's time. Take that nap. Take your kids out for movies and ice cream and putt-putts. Take your wife out on a date. Go hang out with your best friend. Continue to build those relationships. Work hard so that you have everything that you need. And in that process, if you can get more, give it away. He says it's better to have one hand full and, and plenty of rest in your life than two hands full and find yourself pursuing after futility. Those that are in relationship with you will thank you for that balance. Right? If they have your presence, that will mean more to them than anything that your paycheck can provide. That will mean more to them than anything that your prestige or your power can provide. The last work ethic that Solomon mentions in verse 8 is that of the workaholic. Solomon says that this person has no end to their struggles. Now, this person is not content with all that he has. There may be a vast amount of wealth available to this person, but it's still not enough. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. When will it be enough? When it's enough. But it's never enough. There's always more to do. There's always more money to make. Right? And this person that Solomon's talking about here in verse 8, this person has sacrificed all of their relationships to focus on their job. There is no fun. Right? There is no rest. There is no love. There's only the task at hand. More, more, more. I need more. At the end of verse 8, Solomon speaks for this person. And, and he's showing that they have realized that all the work that they are doing is futile because there's no one to be working for. They have no friends. They have no spouse. They have no family. Why? Because work has been an all-encompassing factor in their life. They didn't have time for friends. They didn't have time for relationships. They didn't have time to seek out a family because they were constantly focused on their work. At some point, it's very possible that people with these tendencies, they wake up, they realize on how much they've missed out in their life. They realize that what they're pursuing after is futile, that it's vanity of vanities. It's like chasing the wind. There's no satisfaction in this. And if people would wake up from this, much like, remember Ebenezer Scrooge in, in the Christmas Carol? He woke up, realized all that was going on in his life that he was missing, and he realized, he said, at the, at the end of that story, it's not too late. Right? It says there at the end that he, he made it a point to, to love on the Cratchits and everyone else that were, was around him saw the Christmas spirit in him and, and he saw that it wasn't too late. And so if someone could have this kind of moment that Solomon is talking about here, it would be a blessing from the Lord because it would show that they had time to rectify some of this. It would, it would show that they have time to turn those priorities around, to build some of those relationships, right? Because the Lord said in Genesis 2.18 that it is not good for us to be alone. We were made for community. We were made for one another. 
Now, that doesn't mean that we all have the same types of relationships. But the only thing that God said wasn't good was that man was alone. The New Testament proves all this to be true by all the 59 one another commands that we see sprinkled out throughout the pages. I talk about these commands a lot. The one that is spoken of most is to love one another. You can't love one another if you don't have people in your life. You can't love one another if you don't make time for those people in your life. You can't serve one another. You can't encourage one another. You can't correct one another if you don't make time to have those people in your life. You can't weep with one another. And the list just continues on and on for everything that we're supposed to do for one another. Solomon agrees or he shows that he agrees that these relationships are important because he points out the benefits of these relationships in verses 9 through 12. Let's look at that again. He says there, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. So if someone falls with someone around, they've got someone to help them up. Right? The person that falls on their own struggles. It made me think about that old commercial with Life Alert. You know, I've fallen and I can't get up. Right? What if you don't have that button? What if you've fallen and there is no one around to help you up? And if we are constantly living our lives in a way that we are working it away, we're being too lazy and no one wants to be around us, or if we are consumed with jealousy, then people are going to stay away from us and there will be no one to help us up when we fall, either figuratively or you know, in real life where you actually do fall down and need help being picked up. He says there that two people can keep each other warm with body heat. The one who is alone will have to remain cold. Right? It's useful to have more than one person around you. I liked the last one. And what happens if you get in a fight? It's good to have two people to take on that other guy if you get in a fight with someone. And if you can get three people to beat that dude up, that's even better. Right? It's important to have people in our life because any help we can find, it always makes life easier. Life is always better when you have people around that love you. So the question that we have to ask is, is it worth it to engage in life with any other work ethic than the moderate choice? Is it worth it to have so much envy in your life that people just want to avoid you? Like everything's a competition. You can never just enjoy being around them. Is it worth it if you avoid work due to laziness and nobody wants to be around you anymore because you're a leech? Right? You're a parasite. You're constantly taking away from people and never giving anything back. Is that going to be worth it in the end? Right? There may be some short-term gains for that, but not long-term. People are going to avoid you. And is it worth it that you acquire all this stuff through endless toil, just never can shut down, can never stop working? You're working 
16, 18 hours a day and all you have time to do is crash for a few hours and then you're back at it again. Is it worth all that if at the end of it all you're sitting on this mountain of money and no one loves you? No one cares. Congratulations, you've got a mountain of money. Nobody, nobody cares. Is it worth it? Anything other than moderation is foolish. Solomon says it's like chasing the wind. And Solomon wraps up this passage by saying this about wisdom. Better is a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer pays attention to warnings. For he came from prison to be king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who move about under the sun follow a second youth who succeeds him. There is no limit to all the people who were before them, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. This too is futile and a pursuit of the wind. Now, there are certain biblical scholars that would take this out and put it into a completely different section about the futility of politics, the futility of power. But I think that there is something to be seen here in this idea of these relationships that we have from our work ethic. Right? He says it's better to be poor and to be wise than it is to be an old, foolish king who won't listen to anyone. Right? Having more stuff, having more power, having more influence is worthless if there's no one who can speak into your life. Why? Because all that stuff, all that power, all that influence will eventually fade away. Right? We saw here, he talked about somebody's going to forget about your rule and reign at some point. You can be the wealthiest person in the world and then in a few generations, no one's going to care. You can be the most powerful king that has ever existed and at some point, no one will care. They will be distracted by someone else. It's going to fade away. Living for all that stuff is futile. It's like chasing the wind. So it's better to be poor and to understand all of these things and to live accordingly than it is to reject this wisdom. And there are so many people, both Christian and secular alike, that are putting this wisdom out there for us. Right? I had it all. I tried it all. And it all came up empty. You know, they're not, at the end of their life, they're not sitting there saying, man, I really wish I had just 30 more minutes to do more work. Right? It's almost always about relationship of some kind. I wish I had spent more time with my family. I wish I had spent more time with my friends. Not, I wish I had spent more time at the office. If I could have just sent one more email, right? Sent out one more text message, got one more order done before I left for the day, then I would finally have been content. If we pursue after these things, we are living a life of futility. So how does this apply to you? Where do you fall in these four categories? Do you envy those that have more stuff than you? Is that your sole motivation for doing what you do? I just want a little bit, I just want just a little bit more than they have, right? I just want a little bit more. I want them to look at me with the same envy that I look at them with. Is that you? Are you lazy, right? Do you take the least amount of work possible? 
I've heard of a new trend going on in the, the modern world. It's called quiet quitting. It's where you essentially do the least amount of work possible to keep your job. Right? Just get that paycheck. But even then, I would say that's still better than sitting there with your arms folded, lean back with your hand out and say, hey, if you could take care of me, that'd be great. Are you lazy? Do you work for what you have? Are you a workaholic? Do you work too much? The opposite end of that spectrum. You're constantly striving for a goal line that will continue to move away from you because there's no satisfaction in it. Is that you? Do you work so much that your family doesn't see you? Do you work so much that you miss you know, recitals and plays and ball games and everything else? You miss family reunions because you're too busy doing stuff at work? Are you a workaholic or are you moderate? Are you, do you understand that this is the level of life that I need? Maybe a little bit of wants in there as well. We are American, right? So, you know, throw in a vacation or two in there, right? A little bit of extra pizza every now and then. But do we know that if we keep piling stuff up on top of that, it's eventually worthless? And not only that, there are people suffering in the world that could use our extra. Where are you on this list? And honestly, it's probably best for you not to answer this question on your own. Right? Because everybody, oh, I'm moderate. Right? That's the right answer, right? I'm that. In reality, you should ask the person that is closest to you where you are on that. Someone that's going to give you an honest answer. Hey, honey, do you think I'm lazy? Ask that question when you get home. Oh, yeah, sure do. Well, you're wrong. <laughs> honey, do you think I'm a workaholic? Because I don't think so, right? I mean, we don't often look at ourselves through uh, anything other than rose-colored glasses. So it's best to ask people that are around you how you are with your work ethic. And if you're not in this moderate place... Maybe you should repent. Maybe you owe someone an apology. And maybe you should focus on getting what you need and loving the people that God has placed around you well with the rest of the time and rest in Him. Let's pray together. Father, it is my desire that each and every person in here would have a work ethic that brings you honor, brings you glory, brings you praise, and a family life that is thriving because of their presence, or that they would find time to rest because they trust in you. And Lord, that if there's any repentance that needs to be had due to misplaced priorities, I pray that you would make that pop to mind, that there would be people who uh, could call us out on that, someone that is close to us, that loves us, that is willing uh, to pull us back uh, from these uh, dangerous precipices that uh, the, the bad work ethics have. And Lord, that we would see these relationships in this room thrive, both um, with one another and with neighbors and coworkers, and we would see much made of your kingdom through it all. We love you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen.